You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Um, good afternoon. Uh, today's reading is from the book of Matthew, from verse 1 to 39. Sorry, from chapter 23, verse 1 to 39, I should say. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must, be, you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. I love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call on anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, If anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. Anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin. You have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practised the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee! Clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead, then. Complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Our gracious Father, uh, your word says that uh, all scripture is breathed out by you, uh, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, Father, sometimes uh, we come to passages where uh, the usefulness of it seems really apparent, and other times we read passages like today where uh, your word uh, is really challenging, perhaps, uh, has some ideas that we struggle with. Uh, So, Father, we pray that you would be with us, uh, help me to speak faithfully and clearly, and we trust that uh, part of your word, which does indeed say uh, that all scripture is breathed out by you and useful, profitable for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I wonder how it is that you see Jesus. I was thinking during the week, I grew up in a church uh, and it had a stained glass window with a picture of Jesus holding a lamb in his arms. And I must admit, I wasn't always uh, exceptionally engaged with the church service growing up. Uh, Through uh, a few boring church services over many years, uh, that picture of Jesus with a lamb in his arms really started to shape how I see Jesus. It it drummed into me the message, Jesus is gentle and loving and kind, tender. Uh, Perhaps a little bit like a mother hen with her chicks. I don't know if you noticed that. It was a pretty long Bible reading. But towards the end, in verse 37, Jesus describes himself like a mother hen. In verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you uh, who uh, kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. It's just a picture, right? But it's saying Jesus is a bit like a mother hen. He's gentle and loving and kind. And then as I got a little bit older, I remember reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe for the very first time. Uh, Maybe some of you have read it and you might remember the scene where uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are explaining to the children for the first time uh, that Aslan, the Christ figure in the series, sorry if that's a spoiler alert uh, for you, but a spoiler, but uh, Aslan is a lion. 
And if you remember, uh, Susan says to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, Oh, is he safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver says, "Uh, That you will, dearie. Kind of old English. That you will, dearie. In fact, uh, make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So Lucy says, so he isn't safe then? Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Of course he isn't safe. Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So we have these two images. Jesus isn't just like a mother hen. Jesus is also like a king lion. The king, as we saw last week, if you were here, uh, to whom God has given all authority. Authority over Caesar, authority over these religious leaders based in the temple, authority over King David, authority over everyone, authority even to judge our lives. So last week we saw Jesus, God's king's trial at the hands of those religious leaders. This week we see Jesus, God's king's judgment of those very same Jewish leaders. And it's a judgment on one level, a little bit like people appearing before Aslan, uh, that should get our knees knocking, our hearts pounding, our palms sweating. But as we hear Jesus, the king lion, roaring in judgment against these leaders, right? but on the other hand, I suspect that it might also get our hands clapping, our arms cheering. Why? Because, if, I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus isn't just judging anyone in this passage. Jesus is judging religious leaders who are hypocrites. And don't we all love to see a pack of hypocritical religious leaders get what's coming to them? That's one of the things our culture loves, to see the sins of hypocritical religious leaders exposed for everyone to see. We love that, and exactly that's actually what Jesus wants too. That's what this passage tells us. Jesus hates religious hypocrites even more than you do, even more than we do. He roars in judgment at them. So let's take a look at it. Right, verses 1 to 3. Uh, first, Jesus, uh, God's king lion, gives his opening statement, as it were. Uh, imagine it's a court. Right? He gives his opening statement. Uh, it's his uh, kind of summary judgment upon these leaders. Take a look in verse 1. Matthew starts saying, uh, Then... Uh, which raises the question, when? We've got to look back, and we look back, we we see that after Jesus has demonstrated that he's God's king, the Messiah, if you read the end of chapter 22, the one who has all authority, he's proven that by answering every question uh, that the Jewish leaders have brought to him. It's once he's established his authority that he launches into this judgment upon the Jewish leaders. Uh, So you can imagine how the tables have turned. But the one that these leaders had presumed to put on trial turns out to be their judge. Of course, Matthew tells us that Jesus is saying these things uh, to the crowds and to the disciples. So at least initially in the first part of this passage, Jesus is not speaking directly to the Jewish leaders. Right? These words are a warning to those who might be tempted to trust and follow these leaders uh, instead of trusting and following Jesus. He's saying, don't do that. Let me tell you why you shouldn't do that. Uh, the word teachers of the law, it, it's a, a Greek word, grammatase. I don't mention that to show off Greek language skills because I don't have very many, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but just to say that it's related to our word grammar. 
which gives, us a, gives you a little bit of an idea of what was particularly important to these leaders. They were interested in studying all the details of God's law, how it all fit together. And they often worked alongside the Pharisees, the other group here, a group who were equally fastidious about the details of God's law. So we have the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And in verse 2, Jesus affirms that they sit in Moses' seat, which is to say that uh, you know, here I am uh, in front of a church teaching and I'm standing up. But in Jewish culture, if you went to the local synagogue, uh, these leaders would be sitting in a seat up the front from which they would teach God's law. And Jesus is saying, uh, so Jesus is affirming that these guys are teachers. Uh, so he says in verse 3, you must be careful to do everything they tell you. He's saying insofar as they faithfully unpack God's law, they explain it to you, uh, Jesus urges people to listen to them. I do what they say, Jesus says, but don't do what they do. I do what they say, but not what they do. Why? Well, Jesus says, they do not practice what they preach. As someone who spends a fair bit of my life uh, preaching and teaching God's word, this would have to be the most savage judgment that someone could label. Someone could put the finger at my ministry. They could come up to me after church. Maybe they visited church a few times. Uh, and they say, Aaron, I just need, to know, need you to know. I like what you've got to say, but you just don't practice what you preach. I've observed you, you talk the right talk, but you don't walk the right walk. There's a horrible inconsistency. That would be horrible for them. That's the judgment that Jesus is making upon these leaders. Right now, and in the rest of the, uh, the chapter, he talks about three main ways in which they don't practice what they preach. Right, so first, in verses 4 to 7, uh, he condemns them for their hypocritical living. What's the big deal about this hypocritical living? Well, it perverts true Christian living, which is about internals, not externals. So look in verse 4. Jesus says, uh, These leaders tie up heavy cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And maybe later on you want to flick back to the end of Matthew chapter 11. Uh, where Jesus said that coming under his leadership and teaching uh, is something that is easy and light. Right? Why is that? It's because Jesus is willing to carry our burdens for us. In particular, the burden of our sin, which Jesus carried all the way to his death on the cross. Uh, but Jesus says, not these leaders. If you want to come under their leadership and teaching, it will only serve to multiply your burdens. They will load these burdens up upon you. And whereas Jesus says, I'm willing to lift up a cross to carry your burdens, these leaders aren't even willing to lift up a finger to carry any burdens. And Jesus says, don't follow them. Or they'll only load you up with cumbersome burdens. And he says, uh, in the end, these leaders, uh, everything they do is just a show. They're not really about caring for people. They're happy to burden you uh, because their whole ministry is just a show. Take a look there in verse 5. It's done for people to see. Uh, for these leaders, what they wear is a show. Right, Jesus says, 
Uh, they make their phylacteries extra wide. I'm sure you all know what a phylactery is. Uh, but you, maybe there's a footnote in your Bible. It was there in mind. These are uh, boxes that uh, Orthodox Jews, many Orthodox Jews still wear, that they maybe wore it on their forehead or on their arm, uh, that ca- contained uh, specific Bible verses, precious verses for them. Uh, Jesus says these guys make their phylacteries extra big so that everyone can see they take God's word seriously. And they make the tassels on their garments extra long. Uh, that word long is related to our word magnify. So Jesus is kind of saying, uh, these guys uh, put the magnifying glass on their religious-looking garments so that everyone can see what they wear. Maybe you can think about some religious leaders in our world today who are a little bit like that. Uh, they want everyone to see just how religious they are by the external clothes that they wear, the trappings. Maybe they've got a great big cross and a big hat on their head. I don't know what it is, right? But they want people to see it. And Jesus says they want people to see uh, where they sit as well. Right? These leaders, Jesus says, uh, love, uh, let me find my spot, love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats at the synagogue. Right? They love being at the center of attention, being seen to, to be sitting with the most important and influential people. That's what these, these leaders love. Uh, They also love to be greeted with respect, greeted uh, with respect in the marketplace. Jesus says, in particular, they love to be called rabbi. You get the idea. These leaders are obsessed with all the externals of their religiosity. Their clothes, their seating arrangements, their greetings. But on the inside, Jesus says their spiritual life just doesn't match up. They're hypocrites. That word hypocrite, it's like the the hypocrites that Jesus' listeners might have come across down at the local theatre. In Greco-Roman theatre, actors, some actors were known as hypocrites, uh, and they would, uh, one actor would play multiple parts in a particular play, uh, and to play those different parts, they would put on a a large kind of mechanical mask uh, to play different characters in the play. They would pose and pretend and perform as different characters behind these different masks. And Jesus says that's what these religious leaders are like. Their whole religious life is just one big pose after another, a performance, they're pretenders. They look wonderful on the outside, but on the inside there's no real spiritual life. They don't practice what they preach. Jesus condemns them for their hypocritical living. And then uh, in verses 8 to 12, uh, he condemns them uh, for their, what I've called, their honorific titles. Uh, let, me, let me find my spot. I'm going off my notes too much. <clears throat> Verses 8 to 12, their honorific titles. Yeah, so Jesus has just said that these guys are loved to be called rabbi, but then in verse 8 he switches to speaking to his own followers, his disciples. As you see there, he says, uh, but you are not to be called rabbi, uh, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Right? Jesus has just affirmed that these guys, that the religious leaders sit in Moses' seat. They do a whole lot of teaching. People should listen to what they say. Uh, so Jesus' problem here is not with what you might call small t teachers. He's talking about the, his issue with these leaders is that they go around demanding that people call them teacher, capital T teacher, the one to whom their allegiance is shown, rabbi, teacher. And it reminds me, actually, of a Seinfeld episode. 
Uh, I don't know if you guys are fans of Seinfeld, but there's one where Elaine is dating a a guy uh, who's a famous conductor, and the guy refuses to respond unless people call him maestro. Someone could say his name over and over again, and and he'd just ignore them, and then they'd say maestro, and he'd be all ears, you know? That's what these leaders are like. It's ridiculous, but they insist that people call them rabbi, teacher. They love that. But amongst God's people, Jesus says uh, that we've got one teacher. It's him. He's shown himself in the previous chapter to be the authoritative teacher that we owe our allegiance to. But every other teacher, like me, is just a small T teacher pointing you to Jesus. So don't call me teacher. Only Jesus. And then Jesus takes issue with another one. He says, and do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. How elsewhere again? We've got to be careful with this, because you you might freak out and go, oh, gee, I call my dad father. No, elsewhere Jesus affirms that we're to honour our father and mother. He's not saying you're not allowed to call your biological dad father, if you like that kind of formal terminology for your dad, right? He's not saying you're not allowed to do that, but he's saying that you shouldn't call any particular religious leader father. Why is that? It's because uh, through faith in Christ, we become children of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, our one and only Father, is in heaven in a spiritual sense. Jesus says, don't call any earthly person Father, your spiritual Father. Nor, Jesus says, uh, should you be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Right? Different word to teacher uh, back in verse verse 8, but basically the same idea. Jesus is the authoritative teacher, instructor that we surrender our lives to when we become a part of God's people. Uh, So we we do have to uh, briefly uh, dwell on Jesus' words here. Take them seriously. We might not be like the the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Many of you will know that they still call their priests Father, Holy Father. Personally, if I was talking to a Catholic priest, I'd ask them, how do you reckon that lines up with this verse? I don't want to point people towards their one Father in heaven. That might not be an issue for us. In the Presbyterian Church, I was thankful in 2016, uh, the assembly of of the Victorian Presbyterian Church decided that we'd stop calling the state leader of our church very reverent. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I can't believe we used to do that. But I'm thankful that we stopped it. It was a good thing. In our own church, we should be careful about the way in which we use the word pastor. Some of you call me Pastor Aaron or Pastor Adam, and I think that's fine, as long as you see it primarily as a description of what we're trying to do. We're trying to shepherd people and care for them and feed them. It's not a description of us, a sign that we have some sort of superior rank amongst God's people, that we're somehow better than anyone else. And I hope you've noticed that that Adam and I would never demand that anyone call us pastor. Because amongst God's people, verses 11 and 12, that's not what leadership should look like. But amongst God's people, leadership is about humbling yourself that God might exalt you, not exalting yourself by demanding that people call you by a particular name, that one day God might humble you. Jesus condemns these leaders for their honorific titles. Why? Because they distort true true Christian leadership, which is about service 
not being served. And then in verses 13 to 36, the kind of large section, the bulk of the passage, Jesus condemns their heartless priorities. Uh, You might have noticed that there are those seven different woes in this passage. Uh, It's probably helpful to know that that word woe uh, is actually a a word from Jewish funerals. It's a funeral word. It's a word of lament and grief. It's a cry almost of of wailing in grief. Uh, That's helpful to know because it reminds us that that as Jesus is delivering these woes, it's it's not sort of like he's enjoying himself. Every woe is a sign of his grief that these leaders haven't done a better job of leading God's people. That shatters him. He's devastated by what a poor job they've done. So he has these seven woes and uh, this idea of one of God's messengers delivering woes of judgment upon God's people, that's not a new idea. Uh, Later on, if you like, you can read Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah does it there. So given this kind of Old Testament background, uh, it's maybe not surprising that this passage also follows a bit of a, a Jewish literary structure. Maybe that sounds a little, kind of a little bit silly. Why do we need to talk about literary structure? But I reckon it helps us to understand the passage. Uh, the structure, you may have heard it before, it's called a chiasm. And the idea of a chiasm uh, is that the central verses in the passage are the central point of the passage. And all the other verses around that central part are arranged kind of in parallel to one another. So I can kind of explain it a little bit. Uh, uh, Let me just uh, find my notes. So uh, in this passage, we've got woes uh, 1 and 7, the kind of bookends of the passage. Uh, And that's where uh, Jesus uh, judges these leaders for their rejection of God's messengers. And then in Woes 2 and 6, uh, we see Jesus' judgment uh, upon their uh, misdirected religious zeal. Then in Woes 3 and 5, just coming in towards the center, Jesus judges them for their distortion of God's word. Uh, And then right in the middle of the passage, Woe 4, the the very central woe, uh, we see Jesus' judgment upon their heartless priorities. That's sort of how the the whole passage fits together. Uh, So we're going to look at it by looking at those pairs of woes moving into Woe 4. So let's look at Woes 1 and 7. It's about Jesus' judgment on their rejection of God's messengers. Take a look first at verse 13. Verse 13, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Incidentally, five times in this passage, Jesus says that same thing. You hypocrites, driving home that idea from the start of the passage. You guys don't practice what you preach. You hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven uh, in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, uh, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So these leaders who probably would have thought that they would have been first through the door of the kingdom of heaven, you know, leading others into the kingdom. These leaders are not only shut out of the kingdom themselves, Jesus says, but they're responsible for slamming the door of the kingdom in other people's faces. Even people who want to get in can't get in because of these leaders. And the reason that's happening is in Woe 7. The other bookend of the passage, woe to you, this is verse 29, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites again, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. Why are these leaders shutting the door of God's kingdom on themselves and others? It's because they're rejecting God's messengers. So much so that they're actually preparing their graves and tombs. That's how they treat God's messengers. 
Jesus. And now Jesus knows that these particular leaders that he's speaking to probably haven't killed one of God's messengers yet. Yet. Right, so in verse 30, Jesus anticipates their thinking. And have a look what he says. Uh, he says, and you say, uh, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Uh, but Jesus says, no, you guys are made of exactly the same stuff. Right, so in verses 31 and 32, he says, you testify against yourselves uh, that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. You guys are made of the same stuff, Jesus is saying. Verse 32, so go ahead then and complete what, you, uh, what your ancestors started. Right, Jesus knows these leaders have already rejected him and have a plan to kill him. And so he says to them, says to them stop messing around, go ahead and complete what your plan has done. Show yourselves to be exactly the same as your ancestors. Stop messing around with all this deception and trickery. We see that deception in, in verse 33. You snakes, Jesus says, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? And maybe you know that throughout the Bible, the snake is a picture of what? It's a picture of lies and deception. But Jesus is saying, you guys have shown who you are. You're exactly the same as your ancestors. And you remember in John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, your father is the, one, the father of lies, the father of deception, and you're acting just like him. The one who specializes in murder and deception. That's what Jesus is saying. Get on with it, he's saying. They want to kill Jesus, God's messenger, just like their ancestors would have done. So verse 34, the therefore there is a a little bit confusing, but it probably means something like these things have happened over and over again. What things? God has repeatedly sent his messengers to his people, and his people have repeatedly rejected them. In really kind of horrible ways, right? They've pursued them, they've flogged them, they've killed them, they've crucified them. So verse 35, Jesus says, So upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. Right From the blood of righteous Abel, Jesus says. You can read Genesis chapter 4. Abel being the, the first murder in the Hebrew Bible. And so the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, which is actually the last murder in the Hebrew Bible, recorded in 2 Chronicles 24, verse 21. You can read up. I mean, Jesus is saying uh, in verse 36, Truly I tell you, the punishment for all of this righteous blood being shed will come upon this generation. Which seems a bit rough, doesn't it? Right? Why is that? Well, because in Jesus, God has sent his ultimate messenger. These guys are saying, well, we didn't commit any of that. What's wrong with us? Jesus is saying, God has sent his ultimate messenger. God has sent his son. And you guys are going to reject and kill God's son. You think you're going to get off the hook for that? You're just bringing to culmination this whole history of God's people rejecting his messengers. We've seen in the parables in the previous chapters. You can read back on them. Jesus has repeatedly been saying, God, and finally the owner sent his son. And what did they do? The owners killed the son. So what's going to happen? God is going to reject them because they have rejected his king. 
He's going to shut them out of his kingdom. Remember, woe one. Shut out of his kingdom forever. It's pretty scathing, right? Jesus' scathing judgment upon their rejection of God's messengers. Then woes 2 and 6, Jesus uh, judges their misdirected religious zeal. Look, for, look at verse 15. Uh, woe to you, Jesus says, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. Now, in Jesus' day, it was more difficult than today, except, you know, COVID perhaps. Uh, but in general, more difficult than today to travel over land and sea. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, you guys are really zealous about winning just one person over to your particular way of understanding the Jewish faith. On one level, that's positive, right? Our culture says it's great to be passionate about something, to be zealous about something. Just follow your heart. That's what these leaders are doing. But notice what Jesus says is the result of their zeal. He says that they make their convert twice as much a child of hell as they are. Which is not a, not a good rap for their ministry, is it? Right? Why Jesus knows that the religious converts are twice as, as are typically twice as zealous about their particular faith as those who converted them. Which, of course, is a great thing if you're converted to following Christ. Right? In doing that, you become a child of God, a child of heaven. But if you're converted to the path of following these Pharisees, Jesus says you're just twice as zealous about following a path that will ultimately lead you away from God, to be shut out of God's kingdom, to become a child of hell. It's a horrible thing, a tragic thing. So in the parallel woe, woe 6, in verse 27... Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. This is why it's so tragic for someone to be converted to the way of the Pharisees. They specialize in cleaning people up on the outside, looking alive and clean on the outside. But on the inside, their lives are still full of spiritual death and impurity. There's no doubt that they're zealous, they're passionate, their heart's really in it. But their zeal is hopelessly misdirected, Jesus says, and serves and only does spiritual harm, even if they intend good. And then in Woes 3 and 5, Jesus judges them, uh, for their distortion of God's word. So we've got that section in verses 16 to 22, uh, where Jesus says that their kind of man-made traditions around swearing oaths have distorted God's word. Oh, they say that an oath sworn by the gold in the temple is binding, but an oath sworn by the temple itself is not binding. Right? They kind of pick and choose which oaths are binding. They say an oath sworn by the altar in the temple uh, is binding, but an oath sworn by the temple, uh, the, the temple itself is not binding. Sorry, the, the gifts left at the altar as binding, uh, but the altar itself is not binding. So they're kind of picking and choosing when we need to be faithful to the promises that we make. Uh, but Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 33, that God wants us to simply be people of our word, doesn't he? Right? That our yes would be our yes, and our no would be our no. We're not picking and choosing, you know. Uh, uh, you know, when you're a kid and, and you made pinky promises, you kind of say, oh, yeah, but, you know, I had my fingers crossed behind my back, kind of. Like, that, that's, the, that's the vibe of these leaders, looking for a loophole to get out of their word in some circumstances. Jesus says, no. 
Right? So they're, they're traditions around swearing oaths, they're distorting God's word. Likewise, uh, in the parallel woe in verses 25 and 26, their traditions around ritual washings are distorting God's word. But these leaders are very clearly almost compulsive about their washing on the outside, looking clean and pure. And Jesus says it's like scrubbing the outside of a cup. But they've neglected the more important thing that God said, which is about cleansing of the heart by the power of his spirit, cleansing on the inside of the vessel, of the cup. So you see what Jesus is saying? He said, whether it's with your, your traditions around oaths or your traditions around washings, what's going on here is that you're distorting the clear word of God by the traditions that you've added. And that's Jesus' judgment upon them. And so we come to the central woe in woe 4, the very middle of the passage, where Jesus judges them for their heartless priorities. Look in verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You get the tenth of all your spices, mint, dill, and uh, I was actually um, talking with some people yesterday about my sermon, and I was debating all week about the right way to say cumin, or is it cumin? Maybe, or is it cumin? What do you guys think? All those in favour of cumin, say aye. We'll go with cumin. Anyway, it's, it's one of those words, isn't it? Anyway, uh, mint and dill and cumin. We'll go with that. That's what Stu said. Anyway, uh, but you can see that this is what these leaders prioritise, isn't it? This is what's most important to them. Right? Obsessively tithing everything they have in an almost comical way. But Jesus says that in prioritizing that, they've once again neglected the more important matters of God's law. Right? Living a life of justice and mercy and faithfulness. You see what Jesus is putting his finger on? It's ultimately what these leaders didn't do that revealed what was most important to them, what was closest to their heart, what their deepest priorities were. They were very, very concerned about all the details of God's law, right? legalistically so. But in the midst of all their concern about the details, they missed the main point of God's law, actually living a life of love. Remember, Jesus summarized the purpose of God's law. Love God and love your neighbor. Seek justice and mercy and faithfulness. So Jesus gives, that, gives us that wonderful image. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. I don't know if you understand the image, I'll, I'll try to explain it. Uh, that um, gnats, uh, I'm told, used to breed during the process of fermenting wine. So you can imagine one of these leaders uh, there, they have their kind of big wine vat, uh, and they're there with their strainer, kind of trying to get every last gnat out of their wine uh, so that they can have a, a nice glass of wine that's free of even the tiniest impurity. Of course, at the same time, they don't notice the camel, Jesus says. And so they have a drink and they swallow a camel. Like they're the biggest unclean thing in the world. Like who said Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor? Right? You see, these guys are working extra, extra hard to avoid even the tiniest impurity. And yet at the same time, they're going down paths that lead them to even greater impurity. Jesus judges these leaders for their heartless priorities. Because he points, he's really pointing out that, that true Christian priorities about, are about love and not legalism. 
as we come to the very end of the passage there, what I've called Jesus' compassionate but final verdict. Verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And Jesus has absolutely delivered a severe judgment upon these leaders and upon the city of Jerusalem who largely have followed these leaders and rejected him. But I hope you can tell in these words that his heart still beats with great compassion for them. He loves them. He's longed over and over again for them just to stop being so stubborn, to humbly repent of their sins and take refuge under his wings. That's what he's wanted. But they haven't been willing to do that. So in verse 38, he delivers his judgment, his verdict upon them. Jerusalem and the temple will be desolate. It's a sign of God leaving, God's blessing leaving. It's a sign of God rejecting them. They have rejected God's king repeatedly. And so God will reject them. I'm sure the temple and the city of Jerusalem are going to continue on almost as if nothing's happened for another 40 years until 70 AD when the Romans eventually destroy them. But God's king's verdict is final from this point on. In fact, you might notice if you flick over to chapter 24, verse 1, what does Jesus do? He leaves the temple. He's rejected it. He's judged it. In the end, Jesus' verdict will be vindicated, verse 39, when Jesus returns Everyone in Jerusalem will see, willingly or not, that he is God's king. And they'll quote from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's a fair bit of kind of heavy <laughs> content in this passage. How do, we, how do we respond to it? On the one hand, we might respond, as I said, by having our hands clapping, our arms cheering. As Jesus roars in judgment at these hypocritical religious leaders. But there's something about that that is right. But then if we think again, we might start to see little bits of ourselves in these leaders. Like we kind of cheer Jesus on and point the finger at them, but then we realize, actually, I've been a hypocrite too. Actually, I've craved the honor and respect of others way too much. You know, like, I might not mind people calling me by a special title or being seen to be seated with the most important people. I've craved that stuff way too much. I suspect all of us have had heartless priorities. Things that value, things that God wouldn't value way too much. So how can we be safe from Jesus' roaring judgment? So that one day he's not delivering a savage judgment like this on us. How can we be saved? In the end, we've got to do what these leaders weren't willing to do, don't we? We've got to humbly repent of our sins and take refuge under Jesus' wings. That's the safe place from God's judgment. Because Jesus' wings, as it were, were stretched out, were nailed to the cross in our place, bearing the judgment that we deserve for our hypocrisy, for our craving of too much human honor. But for our heartless priority, Jesus was bore the judgment that we deserve on the cross, and that we might take refuge under his wings 
and know his love and kindness and mercy. And so I want to urge you to be thankful today that Jesus is God's king lion, his king lion who will deliver a savage judgment against all religious hypocrisy. No one's going to get away with anything. That's a good thing. Be thankful for that. I would be even more thankful that Jesus is God's mother hen, as it were, the one who is willing to lay down his life for hypocrites like us, that we might know his love and kindness and mercy, that we might be safe from God's judgment. Let me pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that um, it would indeed be profitable in each of our lives. I pray that we'd be clearer on who Jesus is, uh, that he is the judge uh, who will set all things right, uh, but that we can be safe from his judgment uh, by taking refuge under his wings. Amen.